Solomon the king's major works. Solomon the king wrote many, many songs. However, we're taught that all of the, from all of the different songs that Solomon the king wrote that were well over a thousand, the greatest song of them all is the song of songs as it's referred to, Shir Hashirim, the song of all songs. Now, obviously, we're going to spend quite a bit of time today in the form of an introduction of trying to understand what it was exactly that Solomon the king was out to accomplish with writing this particular work. This is a work that's beautiful on many different levels. Unfortunately, has been misinterpreted on various levels. And we're going to go through some of the mistakes that uh, this text is prone to uh, be interpreted in mistaken ways and so on and so forth. And what I'm going to begin with today is I'm going to begin with three basic, three basic ways of understanding what went behind the authorship of this work. They're going to be the interpretation of Rashi. I'm sure some of you have heard of the commentary of Rashi being one of the most principal commentaries on all biblical text. The interpretation of the Sepharno, who was a great Jewish Spanish philosopher, and the Tzrar Hamar, who is better known as the Nesivos, who wrote an interpretation that was very much based in mysticism. These are the primary commentaries that we will be using throughout the book. From time to time, we will dip into the teachings of the Vilna Gaon, who wrote a phenomenal commentary on this work as well. So what we're going to start with today is the introduction of each one of these commentaries and how they saw the motivation and the general thrust of the work. Each one has something very interesting which follows through parenthetically in how they interpret the entire work. So we'll go methodically through each one of these interpretations. Rashi begins and Rashi says that Shlomo HaMelech, Solomon the king, saw with divine inspiration that the Jewish people would eventually be exiled from the land of Israel and the temple would be destroyed and that that occurrence would not happen once but twice to the Jewish people and that they would go unfortunately from destruction to destruction from pogrom to pogrom however Solomon the king was able to see that there would come a time in Jewish history where there would be a renaissance from within the Jewish people where Jews would begin standing back and thinking about their history as Jews and about what transpired and what their relationship was and how the things that they thought might work for them when they opted out and left don't really work and begin reconsidering returning in the language of Rashi to their former husband. In other words, Rashi says that the entire Shir Hashirim is written 
very much in the context and the symbolism of a relationship of a man and wife that are married and how the relationship sours. However, there, on both the part of the man and the woman in the relationship, they have not given up each other. There is distance that's been created and non-communication that's been created and suffering that's been created by the non-communication, but there has never been a divorce. And that the Jew in his history, no matter what happens to him, and has happened to him in his history, he will come to the moment, according to Rashi, of realizing that God has not divorced him. Separation, possibly. Pain and suffering in the process, definitely. But an ultimate divorce, never. And essentially what Solomon the king is describing here prophetically is how the Jew is going to rediscover the love that was never destroyed between God and his people and between, his pe- between the Jewish people and God. This is Rashi's interpretation. And the Al-Sheikh HaKadosh, who is uh, an interpretation that I'm adding here just to complement what Rashi is saying, the Al-Sheikh HaKadosh says that the first words of Shir HaShirim open up with the words, Shir HaShirim Asher Lishlomo. This is the song of songs that belongs to the author Shlomo. Now, in in, in, uh, Hebrew grammar, it would have been suffice for it to say, Shir Hashirim L'Shlomo. This is the song of songs of Shlomo. It didn't have to say, Shir Hashirim Asher L'Shlomo. That is to Shlomo. So the Al-Sheikh HaKadosh points out that Solomon the king was created from the outset with a soul that was intended to comfort the Jewish people and to tell them in Gullus, to tell them while they're in exile, that God's love for them is indestructible. And if they can find within themselves or can't find within themselves their love for God, it's also indestructible. In other words, that Solomon was gifted with the soul whose, whose mission in this world would be to write a song that wouldn't be sung in the times of Solomon with as much significance as it would be sung by us in these last years of our exile before we return to a completed Jerusalem and a completed temple. And therefore the Alshuk says, Shir Hashirim, Asher Lishlomo, this is Shlomo. This is what he was born for. This is what he was created for. This is what his soul is all about. And the Alshech adds, and the Alshech says, that a Jew believes in resurrection, and Shlomo HaMelech will certainly be resurrected, as, as, as our belief in resurrection, which is a subject which I'm not going to get into right now. But, solid, but the Alshech says, that the words that will be on the lips of Shlomo HaMelech, as he rises in the time of Trias HaMesim, will be to sing to the Jewish people Shir Hashirim. To sing to the Jewish people this song of songs. This is what the Alshach teaches us. Now, according to the Rashi's, interpreta- Rashi's interpretation, we will find in the entire book of Shir Hashirim 
a constant dialogue that's taking place between the Jew and God, God and the Jew. It's either the Jew speaking about the original love that God had for him or his original love for God and how we would like to see that love in a more actual way, in a more real way, and in a more dominant way in our lives. And God's response that he does love us and that in the right time the love will become much more manifest, that today it's a hidden love and will become a manifest love with time. So according to Rashi's interpretation, there are two, di- there are two distinctive qualities that Rashi says is the major, uh, the major thrust of the book of Shir Hashirim. There are two distinctive qualities. One is man, the Jewish people's own recognition of the past love that God had for us and our own past and existing love for God and how we would want to be able to live in that love in a more actual way. And the second point being that the song is a song of comfort in which God reassures us that the love is indestructible from both sides and that it's only a matter of time before that love will reveal itself again. Now, we're going to learn in a, in a short while, we're going to learn in a short while that the, the Tzrar Hamar, which is the commentary that I mentioned before is a bit mystical, right? we're going to learn, I believe it's from the Tzrar Hamar, just let me make sure of this before I... Yes, it is. The Tzrah Hamar says something very interesting, which I think is relevant to say at this point in Rashi's introduction. The Tzrah Hamar, or better known as the Nesivas, as I mentioned before, teaches us that the reality is is that all of, of biblical literature and the prophet literature and scripture, the, all of the 24 principal books of Judaism that encompassed the five books of Moses and all of the prophets and all of the subsequent scripture that was written by David and others. Really, all of it is written on two levels. It's written on a literal level and a practical level. And it is also written on a level, on a deeper, hidden level that hints to many secrets of the universe, secrets about who God is, who we are, our relationship to God, our relationship to the world, etc., etc. And when the Jewish people as a whole were of a higher spiritual level, for example, in the time when we still had a temple, we were able to interpret all of our literature on both levels. We were able to interpret our literature on the literal level, and we were able to plummet the depths of the deeper meanings because we ourselves were in touch with those deeper levels and therefore we could see and understand and appreciate the deeper levels. However, as the spiritual level of the people became waned away and it lost its, some of its intensity because of our suffering and the lack of education that came because of all of our travels and so on and so forth, much of our Torah that we have became 
much more available only on the literal levels of interpretation and the different levels within literal interpretation and the deeper secrets and the deeper beauties became lost to us that we didn't not that they're not recorded and that not, not that we can't retrieve them but they're not our level anymore we don't gravitate in our interpretation however the Nesiva says there is one work that defies, lit- defies literal translation and is entirely written on the level of, of that deeper holiness and those deeper secrets and that's Shir Hashirim that's the Song of Songs and this is why the Talmud teaches us Shir Hashirim Kol Hashirim Kodesh everything that was ever written is holy V'shir Hashirim Kodesh Kadashim and the Song of Songs is, is the holy of the holiest because it defies literal translation it is entirely written on that deeper level so the Nesivas continues and the Nesivas says so if it's written on this deeper level and you said that after the destruction of the temple it's not really the level that we can relate to so it seems that Shir Hashirim now becomes a book that we have to put away until we can grow back into that level so the Nesiva says no it's not true one of the elements that was poured into Shir Hashirim is that even if we don't fully understand it and comprehend it but if we say the words in the belief of the love that we have for God and God's love for us it has a quality of doing making us emotionally feel those qualities which I explained in Rashi in other words a Jew would sit down on an Arab Shabbos before Lechadodi this was custom he would sit down and he would want to come in contact with God and away from the rat race and the busyness of his whole week and he would want to feel his true feelings for God and God's true feelings for him. And what would be the best day to do it? The day that hopefully has the least noise, the Shabbos. And how would he introduce himself to the Shabbos? He would sit down and he would read from chapter 1 through chapter 8. He would read Shir Hashirim. That's why it's in the Siddur, right before Kabbalah's Shabbos. Why? Because even if we don't necessarily plummet the depths of its deeper secrets, but there is, a, there is a love that's in, within the words themselves that as the Jew recites it, something is ignited in terms of the relationship of love between God and his people. This is, this is how the Nesivas explains how it was used as a tool even without necessarily understanding what the words were. Right? How much more so if we can sit down and we can study some of the interpretations as we will over this course, how much more so will the Shir Hashirim but the Shir Hashirim in itself has this this comforting note of the the undying love that exists between man and his people so this is the first interpretation and this is this is Rashi's interpretation now according to Rashi this is something that I just methodically want to do the reason why Shir Hashirim is referred to as the holy of holiest why is it referred to? In each interpretation, we'll go through this. So according to the Nesivus, which I just mentioned before, it's referred to as the holiest of holiest because it defies literal translation. And we're going to come back to that a little bit later. Right? And it's only spoken of in the holy language of the deeper interpretation. According to Rashi, the reason why it's the holy of holiest is because a language that speaks of undying love between the Jew and God and God and Jew 
in the most difficult of times and speaks of our struggle to serve God and God's yearning for us to return in the darkest period of time is the holiest work of all. To speak splendor of God in times of, of apparent clarity and apparent comfort and luxury is not difficult. It's much more difficult to accept upon oneself a, 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 a responsibility to serve and to find that deep love in a time of darkness. And a work that speaks of our commitment to finding that love and believing in that love in our darkest moments of our history, that is the holy of holiest. To, in other words, not to be discouraged and not to be put to the side and not to look at things superficially, but to be able to look a little bit deeper and to know that underneath all of it there is an undying love that represents the holiest of our works. This, this is Rashi's interpretation. From here, we naturally go into the second introduction to Shir Hashirim, that being the introduction of the Sepharno. The Sepharno, whose, whose interpretations are always philosophical in nature, very heavily philosophical in nature, the Sepharna has a little bit different, a different interpretation of, of, of the thrust of Shir Hashirim. You see, according to Rashi, Shir Hashirim is the renaissance of the Jew himself sensing and being suspicious of an undying love and God's confirmation of that undying love. But it's something that wells up within the Jew and God confirms it. This is Rashi's interpretation. According to the Sepharno, Shlomo HaMelech wrote this primarily as his work to teach us not to, to look at our suffering and to look at the difficulties that have happened Okay, and not to be able to recognize that behind all of it, God has never rejected us. In other words, according to the Sepharno, it's not a prediction of the self-realization of the Jew himself in his history, but according to the Sepharno, it's Shlomo HaMelech teaching the Jew that would otherwise not believe in the love, not to let go because of the difficulties that he's going through, and to convince and to persuade the Jew that God really loves him and that he really loves God. It's a different angle. In other words, it's not something that comes up within the Jew and God confirms it. According to the Sepharna, no, Shlomo HaMelech is a teacher to us. And he's saying, you would believe that God has rejected you and you would believe that God has given you up and maybe has chosen somebody else. Heavens only knows if he can find somebody else. But we would believe that. And Shlomo HaMelech's mission is to teach us you're making a mistake, you're misinterpreting yourselves, you're misinterpreting God, and in those misinterpretations you're misinterpreting your relationship to him and his relationship to you. Now, the Sepharna gets into a very interesting discussion that's somewhat philosophical and one that we don't like to listen to, we don't like to hear. And that is that there are two ways of relating to God. There's relating to God and loving him because he's a sugar daddy, because he delivers, and I love him when he delivers, and I don't like him, and I don't pay attention to him, and I pick and choose, and when he doesn't deliver, he's not God, because the definition of God is only when he delivers, 
That's the very definition of what God means, delivering my bottom line. Right? And what the Sephardim says is that what's, what Shlomo Melch is trying to shift us away from is that immature definition of God. That God is by definition the sugar daddy. Right? And what does the Sephardim mean? The Sephardim explains to us that in essence God is always giving. But giving is sometimes accomplished by delivering what we conceive as the bottom line. And sometimes giving is by not delivering the bottom line. And the maturity of recognizing that there is a giving in giving and that there is a giving in not giving when it's not the right time to give or it's the wrong thing to give and so on and so forth. That's a whole different level of maturity. And what, what Shlomo HaMelech is out to, to try to get us from is from the immature way of relating to God and to love. As I love you because you give me this and this and this and this. And I hate you on the day that you don't give me this and this. And moving up a step and understanding that love sometimes requires giving and embracing. And sometimes love, to be true and deep love does require, if not with the right hand, but with the left hand, a certain pushing and a certain holding back in order for the love to be a mature one and a healthy one. This is the Sepharno's way of, of interpreting this. Now, the Sepharno adds, and he says that the Jew has a unique capacity to be able to learn this lesson. The Jew has a unique way to understand this and to, because of the spiritual caliber of what makes them up and what their ancestry was and so on and so forth. The world would like to persuade us, the Sepharna says, that if you're suffering and having a hard time, God has dumped you. Okay? And what Shlomo Melech is saying is, no, having a hard time is not necessarily rejection. Sometimes a hard time is the difficult but deep ways that we sometimes need to learn that the love is there. It's not necessarily there in the ways that we usually would want to see it, but the love is there on a deep level. Right? This is what this this is the major thrust, okay, that the Sepharno that the Sepharno is going with. Now, according to the Sepharno, according to the Sepharno, God will substantiate his claim to his love of us, okay, and our love of him. Okay? He's going to substantiate it. He's going to substantiate it by history and showing how much God invested in us and how much we invested in God. Okay? And make the argument, and we're going to learn this as we go through the chapters, and make the argument that it's not logical and it's not, and it's not straightforward to assume that these investments were just cast upon the waters and they were thrown away, but that these investments are long-term investments but they don't necessarily reach maturity until we live through and go through different things that we need to go through to realize them. This is the general thrust of, of the Sepharno. Okay? According to the, and according to the Sepharno, as I mentioned before, the reason why Shira Shirim is the Holy of Holiest is because it speaks, as Rashi explains, it speaks of recognizing God in the darkest of moments. Right? According to the Sepharna, it's Shlomo Melech teaching it to us. According to Rashi, it's us realizing it on our own. But that's the basic gist of the two. Now we come to the third and final 
interpretation in terms of introduction to the thrust of Shir Hashirim, the one of the Tzrar Hamar. Okay? And I want to spend a little bit of time with this because he addresses one of the mistaken notions of what Shir Hashirim is all about. First of all, the Tzrar Hamar says, as I mentioned before, that the entire Torah is written on two levels, the literal and the deeper. When we were of a spiritual level, we were able, we accessed both levels of interpretation. As we lost some of our spiritual education and sensitivity, we were able to hold on to the literal. We lost our connection and appreciation of the deeper secrets that lie in everything. However, the Song of Songs, to begin with, was only written on the deeper level, and that's why it's referred to as the Holy of Holies. There are no disguises in Shir Hashir. It's only written, and it was only meant for that deeper level. Now, the Nesivas at this point in his interpretation of the as an introduction to Shir Hashirim, he stops and he says, I am fully aware of the fact that there were those that wanted to interpret Shir Hashirim as a passionate love song between a man and a woman, maybe between Shlom HaMelech and somebody that Shlom HaMelech was, was courting, there are those that would want to say that, it, that all it is is, roman is romance on the, on the most literal okay, and the most physical of levels. And they bring to this, they support this by the different descriptions of the different parts of the body, the beauty of the eyes and the beauty of the teeth and the beauty of this and the beauty of that. And obviously, all it is is a love song. The Nesivos brings, the Nesivos brings from the Ramban, which is Nachmanides, okay, the strongest language to, to strike this interpretation down, that it's absolutely not true. It's absolutely not true. The entire thing is a symbolism, etc., etc. Now, I'm sure that some of you have heard the fact that some claim that it's merely a love song and others say, no, it's all symbolism. And I'm sure that somewhere deep down within yourselves you said, oh, there are the rabbis all over again whitewashing a passionate love song and they just can't admit to the fact that Shlomo Melech was, was writing romance. Okay? So the rabbis, like they always do it, they whitewash the whole thing. Okay? I'm sure that you've, you've, you've heard both arguments and I'm sure that somewhere you're suspicious of the, that whitewash argument. The Nesivus over here gives us such a clarity. I'd like to share this with you. It's the first time that I see it, to, to be honest with you. It says like this. It says the, let's take, for instance, we just read yesterday in Genesis. Okay? We just read yesterday in Genesis how first man and his wife, Adam and Chava, how before they partook from the tree of knowledge and did what they were instructed not to do and brought negative inclination within themselves, how they both lived without clothes and without shame. This is what the Torah describes. No shame. And the commentaries discuss this. You know, prehistoric man, no shame, what's with him running around without clothes. Maybe today people don't have problems with it, but, but, but uh, the most commentaries had a problem with it. Like, what, what's going on here? So many commentaries answer this and they say as follows. 
says shame doesn't come into into the into consideration of any part of the human body, even the physical human body, so long as one doesn't attach to that part of the body a meaning and a definition and a role that's not appropriate. Before Adam and Chava introduced negative inclination and doing things separate of their service of God and so on and so forth, they looked at any part of their body as a vessel to serve God. And to them, living together in the most intimate ways was no different than shaking a lulav or lighting Shabbos candles or putting on a pair of tefillin. It was another way of living out the way that God made a person and how the man was meant to serve. And therefore there was no reason for shame. Shame only became introduced into the picture where I introduced all kinds of ulterior motives and self-centered motives and selfish motives and greed motives and all kinds of motives into my life that then make certain things more appropriate to be public and other things less appropriate to be public, etc., etc. But the point being that when man was simple and straight, he quotes a verse from Ecclesiastes, God made man straight. And they complicated their lives with all kinds of things. God made man straight, and in straightness there's no shame, there's simplicity, there's beauty, there's no problem. All of the things, all of the, the need for, 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 for clothes and for covering and this is that is because man misuses and misinterprets and looks the wrong way, etc., etc., and looks at people as objects. In other words, as long as a human being wasn't looked at as an object, right, but was looked at as a vessel and as an emissary of God, there was no problem. There was no need for clothes. But when human beings became objects instead of, instead of vessels of holiness, so then the need to protect the human being that he should not be looked at as an object and, be, and draw attention to himself as an object became necessary. Those of you that want a, a greater explanation of this, God willing, in the next uh, Jewish Observer there will be an article about, about this subject, I hope. Right. It's supposed to be there in the next in the next article, in the next edition. But in, in any case, so what does the Nesiva say? So the Nesiva says the reality is that intimacy, romance, and everything, starting from the very beginning, was natural, beautiful, and holy. And therefore, to write symbolically romance as a definition of spirituality was totally natural. <laughs> Because romance wasn't some kind of evil, passionate, negative thing. Romance on its highest level as it was intended was also pure holiness. It's only because romance was lowered to become something that was lustful and greedy and self-centered and this and that and disguised in romance and so on and so forth that that and then then when you say, ah, Solomon the king is writing romance, and then it's a whitewash if it's a symbolism for spirituality. But if you understand that to begin with, romance wasn't something that was separate from spirituality, but that romance itself was a, was a natural expression of love and passion for, for the spirit, 
So then it's not peculiar at all that romance becomes an example for spirituality. And he gives a very interesting example. An example for the example. He says, there was once a beautiful palace. There was once a very, very beautiful palace. And there were only a certain amount of people that could visit the palace every year. But the king wanted that everybody should have the pleasure of knowing what was in the palace and enjoy the different parts of the palace. So he hired a painter to paint the palace. Beautiful pictures of the palace. So even those that could not visit the palace by looking at the pictures of the palace could have some hint to the beauty of the palace. And by seeing the picture of the palace would be able to conceive of the pleasure of the palace itself. <laughs> then came along one character and he decided that he was going to throw a couple of buckets of paint at the different paintings so that each picture now looked disgusting. So now when a person looks at the picture, they immediately say, oh, the palace must be disgusting because the picture is disgusting and it's a picture of the palace, so it's a picture of the palace. And the picture is disgusting, so the palace is disgusting. But the reality is it's not that way. The palace is beautiful. The person messed up the picture and therefore now the picture is not a good example of the palace. So the Nesiva says that's what's going on. He said, there's nothing wrong with romance. Romance is beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of the palace of spirituality. The trouble is that people came along and they poured buckets of garbage on romance. And they made romance into all kinds of different things. And now it then becomes a lousy picture of the palace. This is a phenomenal argument that the Nesivas is teaching us. The reason why we have all of these suspicions, ah, oh, it's a whitewash, it's this, it's that, because we have such preconceived notions of how romance has been destroyed. But if, if romance would be seen correctly, as it was always intended to be, there's nothing wrong with romance. There isn't anything wrong or there isn't anything beautiful about every part of the human body and therefore it being an example of something in spirituality. This is the Nesiva. It's a brilliant... The, the, the Nesiva's interpretation here is a brilliant way. You know, most of us just swallow up Solomon. You know, it would have been better if you would have chosen some other symbolism. We're going to have to push through and try to convince everybody that it was just symbolism. According to the Nesiva's, there's no problem with this. All right? And this is parenthetically one of the reasons why it's Kodesh Kadashim, why it's Holy of Holies. Why? Because the Balatanya teaches us that when we separate the physical from the spiritual, that's what creates unholiness in the world. The whole definition of holiness, the Balatanya says, is understanding that the physical realms were meant to be vessels to absorb holiness. To the degree that I recognize that the physical is are vessels to absorb holiness, so then there is holiness in the world. To the degree that I separate the physical and I say the physical is a separate realm, it becomes a separate realm. And it becomes the realm of unholy. Being that Solomon the king uses the physical as a total symbolism of what? Of spirituality. And fears not that the physical is what? Is a different realm and therefore I cannot utilize it as an expression of spirituality. Therefore, Shir Hashirim Kodesh Kadashim. Therefore, Shir Hashirim is the holy of holiest because it knows no barrier between the physical and the spiritual. The physical itself is an expression of the spiritual. And when the physical knows no barrier and becomes an expression of the spiritual, that's an expression of, of the holy of holiest. 
So that would be the Nesivus' interpretation, just to get rid of the, you know, that other interpretation of Shir Hashirim. Right? However, the Shlama Hamath, according to the Nesivus, there are some distinct qualities that are different than Rashi and the Sepharno as an introduction to Shir Hashirim. There are some differences. And let me go through them. According to the, according to the Tzrar Hamar, okay, one major subject in Shir Hashirim that differs from the other interpretations is that we are asking God, we are asking God to bring to fruition the promised greater future than what our past was. Now let me explain that. That was a lot said in one sentence. We speak about the fact that the Jewish people had two major events that happened in their history that are expression that are an expression of the Jewish people ascending to the highest levels. We talk about Yitzias Mitzrayim, which parenthetically is a subject that's spoken of much in this book, our going out of Egypt, God's desire to extricate us from the impurities of Egypt, our own belief to follow God into a desert. You see the expressions of love, God's caring for us to take us out, our ability to follow God out as our love of God, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and subsequent to that, Maimed Har Sinai, our ability to commit ourselves to a, a real relationship with God, to live with God day and night, the acceptance of Torah, Maimed Har Sinai. Now, most of us think that there, are, there is no greater pinnacle in Jewish history than those events, spiritually, that is. Maybe economically, there are better times, but spiritually, we envision that that's the highest level. The reality, though, is the reality, though, is that uh, for many different reasons, that's not correct. It's not correct. Let me just cite a couple of examples. This is disturbing. When you hear it for the first time, it's disturbing. I know, because the first time I heard it, it was disturbing. Right? Let's give an example. How many of the Ten Commandments, I'm just saying this by way of example, later on as we interpret the text, we're going to see. Okay? We're going to go into this much more in depth. How many of the Ten Commandments did the Jewish people hear face-to-face, one-on-one with God? Two. How come they didn't hear the other eight? Does anybody know? Because they felt that they could not, they could not tolerate it and live up to it. Okay? Or, whichever way you want to say, they couldn't tolerate and live up to it, or they couldn't tolerate it and live through it. it was, and they therefore asked Moses to be their teacher, to be their intermediary. Moses didn't know if they were trying to just get out of things. And God said, no, they're really interpreting their levels correctly, they're not ready for it, so on and so forth. Right? So after everything is said and done, while the first two of the Ten Commandments are the principal ones, and they encompass in a principal way the entire Torah, but the reality is, is that we weren't fully engaged in the entire proclamation of the Ten Commandments on a one-on-one with God. One of the things that we're taught is that when we will be brought out of this final exile and be brought back in the times of Mashiach to Eretz Yisrael and the Beis Hamikdash will, will be rebuilt, we will ascend to a level 
of being able to hear all Ten Commandments one-on-one from God. This is one of the things. Now, I'm using this just as an example. There are many other examples of this idea. But the point being that there are yet spiritual levels that will be reached and accomplished with the final redemption. The reason for this has to do with an ultimate unity being created between the body and soul in the times after the coming of Mashiach. Higher levels of unity. And the higher the level of unity between body and soul, the less the barriers to being able to receive God one-on-one. That's what it has to do with. I'm glad we take questions on that a little bit later, but that's the general idea. So according to the Nesivus, the Jew is remembering his past glory, spiritual glory, and asking God to bring that spiritual glory back and to move us and to advance us to the ultimate unities within ourselves, body and soul, and with that ultimate unity within ourselves, an ultimate unity with God. And therefore, according to the Nesivos, we're asking for redemption, but with a very particular eye on accomplishing yet higher unities than were accomplished originally, so that we might enjoy God in a total embrace instead of a partial embrace. This is one of the major subjects. Now, according to the Nesivos, this is our request of God, and God's response is, it's very nice that you want this, and I want it for you, but I can't give it to you until you're ready for it. And, And God explaining to the Jew what he needs to do in order to become ready for it. And why and how God doesn't want us to fall on our face. And he wants this to be final and he wants the unit to be to, to be complete. So that there is no letting go, just like in Rashi and the Safarna, there is no letting go of the love. And we're not only speaking about rekindling the, the love of past, but building on the love of past the promised the pro- promised deeper love of the future. This is a major subject according to the Nesivos. Okay. We've more or less, okay, we've more or less finished the three introductions, the three major ways. And they're not terribly different from each other. They just, you know, they accent different points. Rashi, the Safarna, and the Tzrar Hamar. So now let's look inside, let's jump inside, and let's begin. Shir Hashirim Asher Lishlama. This is the song of all songs that was written by Shlomo. And we mentioned before, unique to the soul of Shlomo, etc., etc. Now, there is something which I, I'll share with you now, and you'll tuck it away in your memories for the rest of the course, that the Talmud says an interesting thing over here. Very interesting. Kol Shlomo Shebeshir Hashirim. Whenever it says the word Shlomo in Shir Hashirim, Medaber al HaKadosh Baruch it's speaking about God. It's not only referring to Shlomo, it's referring to God. Melech Shahashalom Shalo. The king on Tuhu is all peace. This is what the Gemara says. Now, taking this from the simplest level, what the Talmud is teaching us is that one of God's names is Shalom. This is why, parenthetically, that a person is not supposed to use the word Shalom if his hands are not clean or if he's in an unclean place. Right? He's, not allowed to use, he's not supposed to use the word shalom. 
Why? Because the word Shalom is another way of saying God's name. Shalom is one of God's names. Right? If you're considering naming a kid Shalom, it's one of the considerations. Right? So, Shalom is one of God's names. Why? Because peace is unto God. Now, what on earth is this supposed to mean? Right? So, the Sepharno, the, the, the interpretation that really relies heavily on on philosophic interpretation, gives us a phenomenal definition of this. And he says like this. He says, Shalom, peace, is when there is no conflict between elements. There is no conflict between elements. When there is no conflict between elements, then there is life. And even a a concept of eternity. The concept of decomposition the concept of something breaking down, okay, is where there is a conflict. One element is, is up against another. There is an erosion that's created by a conflict of elements, and so on and so forth. So the concept of, of existence, of being, is the concept of shalom, where there is harmony between elements. And hefsid, which means the disappearance or the degeneration of elements is the lack of harmony between elements where one element acts to erode into uh, another element. And that erosion eventually creates a disappearance or a dying of, of, the, of, the, of an element. Now, therefore, on the simplest level, the reason why God is referred to as Shalom is because God is a perfect being, a whole being, and we don't speak about God being a being where elements are in contradiction. Okay, so now, what does this have to do? What does this have to do? I mean, this is a very nice philosophy. What does it have to do as the, the introduction to Shira? That whenever God is ne- mentioned in Shira Shiram, he's named by his name Shalom. I mean, that's very nice. So put it in Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed. What is it doing in the middle of Song of Songs? It's a very nice statement. No contradiction between elements is the definition of existence. Contradiction between elements creates hefzid, creates degeneration, being that God is no contradiction of elements, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, very nice. But what is it doing in Shira Shira? Right. So the Sepharno says a very interesting thing over here, which really lends itself to his interpretation. The concept, this concept of when things are whole and they're not in contradiction with each other, you have existence, and when things are in contradiction with each other and one thing is fighting and battling another thing, okay, you eventually get to Hafsid. The Sepharna takes it philosophically, he takes it one step further. Okay? Maybe I should take this step without assuming it before I explain what the Sepharna says. The Sepharna says like this. It says, when you have a contradiction of elements, okay, what you're essentially dealing with is one thing is taking away from another thing. That's what's happening. One thing is taking away. And once you have a take away, so eventually something is going to suffer. Okay? In other words, when there's a contradiction... What, what does contradiction mean? It, just, uh, it doesn't just mean collision and you know, things disappear. It means one thing is detracting from the other. 
And once you have something that's been detracted from, past a certain point, you detract and you detract and you detract, and sooner or later, the thing is going to collapse because so much has been detracted from it. So the Sepharna says a phenomenal thing. He says, so too is the relationship of the Jew with his God. In other words, the Jew's existence, okay, the Jew's existence has to do primarily with not being the spirit, the God's spiritual energy being detracted from him. What is referred to as ha'aras panim, the light of God's face. The light of God's face. In fact, when King David speaks about this, King David says, Taster panecha, if you hide your face from me, which means that you detract spiritual energy from me, and I go into confusion. Because I know that with the detraction of any kind of, of light of your face from me, I can't live. I can't exist without it. I must have that. In other words, it's not like I have existence and I have life support systems without you, God, and you're like the cherry on top. No. You are you are what gives me life. And if I see a detraction of your, in, of your energy towards me, I go into a tizzy because I know that my lifeline is being threatened. This is my, this is my food and water. So, what we're saying over here is we're referring to God as Shalom, which means this perfect existence, this full existence. What we're trying to say to God is like this, God, don't ever detract yourself. Be the Shalom. Be the personification of non-detraction. Because in it, I can live. But if you become a personification of detracting and taking away, I can't live without you. And therefore, referring to God as Shalom within an expression of a love for God is a phenomenal, is a phenomenal expression. What we're saying is that in the same way that in detraction things fall apart, what we're saying is, God, you're my, you're my, you're my thing. If you, please be Shalom. Please be without detraction. Because if you're going to act like detraction and not like Shalom... I'm going to fall apart. I can't be without you. And that's why when God is referred to as Shalom in Shir Hashirim, it's very, very, it typifies an expression of the dependency that we feel on God's love and His involvement in our lives in order for our lives to be worthwhile. And that's why, according to Sephardim, the word Shalom is used as an expression of God in Shir Hashirim. Right. I'll gladly take some questions now on what we've covered up to this point. Yeah, go ahead. See, on this particular verse, to be honest with you, on this particular verse, there's a dispute in the commentaries. Okay, there's a dispute in the commentaries. Does this word Shlomo here really mean Shlomo and nothing else, or does it refer to God? Okay? Or both, yes. It, there is a dispute. T- take, for instance, Rashi. Rashi says, Shira, Shira, Masher, This is the song of all songs that was written to God. That's how Rashi interprets it. Shir Hashirim, Asher Lishlamo. This is the song of all songs that was sung to God. It, going back to the introduction. Okay, it's not so long ago. <laughs> yeah, going back to the introduction of Rashi. Who's speaking in Shir Hashirim? 
Is it primarily Shlomo or is it the Jewish people realizing their undying love and God's undying love for them? According to Rashi, it's a, it's a, it's a renaissance within the Jew. So Shir Hashir, Mashal Shlomo, Rashi interprets is this is the song of all songs that we sing to God. All right? Now, according to, for instance, the Sepharno, Shir Hashir, Mashal Shlomo, it really is Shlomo teaching it to the Jewish people. It's not coming from us, but Shlomo is teaching it to us. Okay? So it has to at least be both interpretations. It can't be just God. Okay? So it really depends which interpretation you go with. All, right? All I was trying to explain is according to the interpretations that say that throughout, which is the Gemara, that throughout Shir Hashirim, the word Shlomo refers to God, why are we picking in particular on the name of Shalom? as an expression of God. And to that, I'm explaining that Shalom is the concept of non-detraction and a non-detraction eternity. And that's what we're asking of God, that he acts as Shalom, that he acts in the conduct of non-detracting himself from us. Okay? Golda, okay, you're when next. When yeah. reading, the idea of reading it, just reading it, even though yes. understanding it, that has to be in Hebrew, no? Excuse me? That would have to be in Hebrew. Would it have to be in Hebrew? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Go ahead. Well, you, you uh, mentioning the interpretation from the Gemara about what how to take Shlomo's name, and I think it's only mentioned a few times, right in Shir Shirim. Yeah, not many times. But uh, what's the rationale behind it? In other words, okay, the rabbis say that in the Gemara, but what's the rationale why they make that interpretation? What's the underlying rationale of it? Uh, that I'm not. I'm, I, I wouldn't be completely sure of it without re, uh, re, reinvestigating the Gemara. I would have to look up the Gemara again. Okay. Um, according to according to the Nesivos, according that we learned in the introduction, I'm just talking out loud, thinking out loud with you. According to the Nesivos's interpretation, for instance, we have the Nesivos says that being that Shlomo HaMelech committed himself to writing a total symbolism. Of, of spirituality, okay. So the assumption most probably was that if the entire thing is written as a symbolism, Shlomo is also a symbolism. In other words, the symbolism doesn't doesn't exclude the Shlomos in in the Shir Hashirim as well. Okay. In other words, if the whole thing is symbolism, so the the Shlomo, the statements Shlomo. In other words, what makes it eternally meaningful is not that Shlomo wrote it. What makes it eternally meaningful, okay, is the deeper symbolism that lies behind it. So I would imagine that it has to do with that. But that itself needs qualification, you know, in terms of uh, are there particular proofs. But the, I, I, I don't want to conjecture without looking at the Gemara again that, that makes that statement. Okay. Given the, uh, the sense of uh, being reduced, Well, obviously, one needs to study what Shir Hashirim is about in order to be able to answer those questions. That's, that's what the commentaries are saying. The commentaries are saying that only by really studying the relationship and the whole history of the relationship could a person really get a more honest view of what the relationship really is. 
So it's hard for me to answer that question at this point. I mean, we've just done an introduction. But within Shirashirim, excuse me, it answers many of those, uh, of many of those, uh, what I would refer to as our dissatisfaction or being disgruntled with, uh, with the relationship, right? Yeah. In the back of the room. Yeah. Okay, so that's an excellent question. It's an excellent question, and I'm happy the question was asked because we'll, we'll be able to appreciate the, both ideas much better. Okay, the point is like this: when the Sephardim says, okay, when the Sephardim says that sometimes giving is in giving actually, in, as you refer to, into the hand, and sometimes giving is giving is by not giving. Right, but there's one thing that is never being held back from the person. And that's God's love for the person. That's never being held back. There are just different forms in which that love is being given and being accomplished between God and man. When the Sepharna says that sometimes it's given in your hand and sometimes it's specifically not given in your hand, but there's one thing that is always committed to man, and that's God. Okay? When we say, when we say, God, don't be a detractor, we're not talking about the objects into the hand. We're talking about, God, you don't ever move yourself away from me. What you want to take or don't take from me, that's fine, but you, what you are, don't take away from me. That's, that's the distinction. It's a good question. Yeah. Okay. Well, one right. question. You're next. Go ahead. That, um, in, in the interpretations you were speaking about in regard to Rashi and uh, the, the second one, Sopharno. Sopharno, who was saying a lot about the divorce. Now, the the uh, the um, theme of Shir Hasharim seems to be between lovers, not uh, not uh, not about a married couple that have been divorced. Because it's the yearning and separation of lovers, not of not after divorce or after separation. Uh, okay, so the okay, so the the point is as follows. The point is. That's exactly the point that Rashi and the Sephardim are making. Rashi and the Sephardim are making the point that though the relationship would seem to be a relationship of divorce, okay, all of Shir Hashirim is to confirm that the elements of true divorce are truly not present here, for there is a love that bonds us together. That's exactly the point. Excuse me? It seems to be between lovers who have not married. In other words, the, 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 the concept of, of marriage and divorce seems to have nothing to do with the actual uh, shot of the, uh, of the text. It seems to be lovers who have not ever married, not that they No, no, no. We'll do this when we go through the text, but that's totally not true. It's totally not true, because if you look at the grammar of the text, we're, ta- we're talking about uh, a past relationship, a present relationship, and a future relationship. There are very particular tenses in which the verses are spoken of, and we, we do the, the verses are spoken of in past, present, and future tenses. Right? We are to assume if there was a past, past relationship that's expressed on the highest levels that it was a relationship that was consummated and a present relationship that's not equal to the past relationship and a hope for that relationship to be, to be 
to be rekindled as it was in the past. But as we'll learn through the verses, we'll see this very clearly, that we're, talk- we're not talking about one ongoing existing relationship. We're talking about a relationship that has a history, has a present, and hopefully a future. Okay? And it's in that vein that the commentaries explain the marriage of God to the Jewish people, what seems to be a divorce, but what Solomon the King is saying is a separation that is made ultimately, not to decide if we should be divorced, but how to learn how to come back together again. Right? But that we'll see. As we go into the verses, we'll see it much more in particular. Okay, one last question. Yeah, the back of the room. And then we leave. some of them. But we have to do them one by one as we go through them. We're going to learn God willing next week in the, in the second verse of Shira Shirim, we're going to learn one very interesting construction of a male and female uh, construction together and the significance of it and so on. But as we go through it, you can gladly point them out and if, if, I, if, I, if I have a way of interpreting them, I'll gladly share it with you. And when I won't, I'll tell you I won't. <laughs> yeah, there, there usually is. Yeah.